0: Okay, good evening, everybody. Our topic for tonight is the Kotel. All right, the Kotel Hama'aravi, the Western Wall. Well, last week we were discussing the Temple Mount. I mentioned that Suleiman in the early 1500s ordered the creation of a prayer space as an alternative to the Temple Mount, which would be located along the Western retaining wall. That's not to say the Jews didn't go there previously, they might have but that this became an officially designated place for Jewish gathering, not a synagogue, but to go and uh, pour out your heart to the Almighty. What was created was a fairly narrow alleyway, flush against the wall, tucked next to the Maghreb Quarter, which was a section of Jerusalem where North African families had been moved 300 years earlier. And throughout the Ottoman period, the Kotel was a place where Jews could go but for the most part, didn't really go. Because there wasn't such a long-standing, intense tradition that this is an important site for Jews. Uh, it was near the Kodesh Karashim but not the closest location to the Kodesh Karashim. The closest location was down below the street level where today you have the uh, the tunnels and they tell you the spot where this is uh, perfectly parallel to the Holy of Holies. Moreover, there's the Kotel HaKatan, the minor Kotel, which is further into the, the Muslim quarter, which is closer than our current Kotel Plaza. So it was not so widely used. The followers of Rabbi Yehud in the 1700s didn't really use it much. The Gruz followers in the 1800s hardly used it. By the 1840s, it became something of a popular venue uh, on Shabbos and holidays. But there wasn't a daily minion at the Kotel like Shachras uh, min Marv until the 20th century. Until the 20th century. All right. Well, let's now discuss what the Kotel meant to Zionism, because it means more to Zionism than it does to Judaism. That's an interesting statement I just made. It means more to Zionism than it does to Judaism. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Ottomans and the British recognized the Jewish right to pray at the Kotel. Visual images played an ideological role, promoted an aesthetic sensibility, symbolic iconography, and it helped develop the national ethos. In other words, the depiction, the visual, the visual image of the Kotel helped create a national ethos. Jews had to transition from an ethnic cultural identity to a national one in the 20th century. Libiba Mizrach, v'ani besof marav, my heart is in the east, but I'm in the far west, was said by Yehuda HaLevi a long, long time ago, but that became a call to return to the New East. In other words, Mizrach. but my body should also be in the Mizrach. I should go there. The Wailing Wall goes from being the Wailing Wall to the Western Wall. Just a change in English terminology. Wailing Wall means we're sad over what was. Western Wall is a more benign term, a neutral term, not about avelus and crying over things. So, When did these images of the Kotel begin to be relevant? Well, visual images of the site appeared on handicrafts, portable handicrafts for pilgrims to take home. Remember, in the the 19th century and early 20th century, people are finally able to travel significant distances all right, go to exotic places. If you're a person from Europe or the Americas, and you have cash in your pocket, you can go on the steamship. You can travel. You can go to the as a pilgrim to the Near East, and you can see the Kotel, and you can bring home chachkis for your family. You know, they, you know, the kids need a, a gift, and the wife needs a gift. Everybody needs a gift. So these gifts are going to have images of the places that you visited, including the Western Wall. Uh huh. Okay, so that's a, a more recent example, but they're already in the 1880s, 1890s. You, they had such things. Oh, thank you. Actually, I had this book, yeah. Um, so to isolate the Western Wall from its Muslim surroundings, these photographs were often shot at odd angles. If you look at photographs from the 1880s, 90s, and early 1900s, it's almost never a straight shot down the alleyway where you see... The Muslim quarter to the side and above, and the kotel on the on the other side. It's always from a funny angle to erase from the from the image what exists on the far side, namely the Maghreb quarter. You're only going to see a wall and old ladies in, in in shawls praying fervently at the wall, or a man with a with a long beard, and a funny looking hat, uh, and by the way, they're all together because there's no mechitza. So Jews. Um, Jewish rights at the Kotel improved in 1841 when the Turks took over for the, from the Egyptians. Remember, the Ottomans were in control from 1517, but in 1830, the Egyptians rebelled against the Ottomans, the Albanian Egyptians of Muhammad Ali, and they held for the next 11 years the control of the land of Israel. When they were kicked out of the land of Israel and the Ottomans took complete control again, so Jewish rights improved. Uh, the western wall became increasingly important for old city Jewry, the old yeshiva in the late in the latter half of the 19th century but people wanted to turn it into a synagogue and what does a synagogue have furniture a table for the the shulchan to read the torah okay a machitza an ark an aron pavement of the floor all these things would make it a more hospitable environment to have synagogue services no, no, they were illegal. So the Ottomans valued the status quo between, t- between 10 and 15 feet wide, not very wide at all. Less, less than from here to the wall. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. 15 feet. So uh, the Ottomans valued the status quo and Arabs were very careful not to let the Jews change the status quo in their favor. No instituting of any furniture, ark, machitza, You got to just show up, pray with your book, and that's it. The Western Wall was an open-air venue. It was hot in the summer, and it was cold in the winter. And Muslim intimidation existed in the narrow alleyway. You know, they were brandishing a sword, a knife, a gun. It wasn't so pleasant to go there. You felt it was a little dangerous. Okay, there were several attempts to buy the Western Wall and the Maghreb Quarter by Jews for the sake of the Jewish people. One such attempt was made by Montefiore in the 1850s. Then Rothschild, the Nadiv, Baron Edmund de Rothschild, did it again in 1887. And it failed not because the Muslims refused, but rather because of Jewish objections. What happened? The Chacham Bashi, who was like the Sephardic chief rabbi, claimed to have had an epiphany that with a deal to be finalized, there would be a massacre of the Jews. In other words, that the Muslims would be so incensed that their leadership sold away the Al-Burak wall where, where Mohammed's donkey was supposedly tied and he went up to heaven, which we call the Kotel that they'd go berserk and kill a lot of people. Now that's what the Chacham Bashi said. He had an epiphany. This was going to happen. Alternatively, and the more, Cynical version of the story is he feared the Ashkenazim would take over the place. In other words, the the Sephardic Jews were the dominant element in the old city for a long time, and now the Ashkenazim are coming in significant numbers, and now a a Rothschild Ashkenazic Jew wants to buy it. He feared that from an ethnic perspective within Jewry, an intra Jewish uh, conflict, that the Ashkenazim were trying to to grab power. (laughs) No, no, if the Jews were to buy it, everything would be allowed, and you could make a synagogue out of it. Now, it was accessible to men and women, because it was a holy site, Makom Kadosh, not a Beit Knesset, not a synagogue. And in 1874, if you look at the images from that year, which were some of the earliest ones, there were more women than men praying at the Kota. Uh, In 1897... The Zionist Congress delegate card. Remember, the first Zionist Congress was 1897. And if you were a delegate, you got a card, like a pass, you know, uh, that you wore with your name tag. So on one side of the card, there was a farmer representing what? The new yeshuv, the Khalutz, the Zionist pioneer. And on the other side was the kotel. So what is Zionism? It's a combination of tradition, but also the new enterprise of the farmer. Uh, The Wailing Wall became a popular symbol in the artwork of the late 19th century as Europeans became interested in Palestine, not just Jews, but Europeans more generally.
1: How did the Wailing Wall become known as the Wailing Wall?
0: Uh, I'm not sure the earliest usage of that term, but it must predate, it's at least in the 1700s or earlier, not anything later than that. So Edward Robinson visited in 1838. Edward Robinson saw old Jews crying. The postcards of the early 20th century depict ruins and ruined people, general poverty, and the Jewish community as a community of tears of mourning. Early Zionist postcards depict the Tower of David instead, that Migdal David represents strength, whereas the Kotel represents the Goyim pushing us around and destroying the temple. Um, Herzl thought of the Kotel as a foul-smelling alley, 2,000 years of inhumanity, uncleanliness, and intolerance. Not exactly a glowing description of uh, our holy place.
1: He must have been
0: right. He was right. Practically speaking, he was 100% right. Now, in, in postcards, the Kotel is more exile than redemption, more exilic than promise within the promised land. The dead Western Wall was to be compared with the live Bezalel School of Art. Remember the Bezalel School was established in 1906. They're producing a lot of this artwork. So to them other the building of the Bezalel School itself was a, rep- a representation of the new, the good, the exciting. The Kotel represented all that was old and dead.
1: So it was course philosophically, They wanted to get rid of tradition.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So Eliezer Ben Yehuda's son, Ben Avi saw the Kotel as part of the usable past. And he thought it was a site that could be reclaimed for modern-day Zionism as a place to remember military heroism, not for religious worship. Meaning, who are the heroes of this location? The Hasmoneans, the Maccabees. Uh, they we're we're going to remember Betar, Titus. But they not, were,
1: no, they were nowhere near there.
0: Huh. The the Maccabees were in the temple. They were on the Temple Mount. Okay, so in 1918, Chaim Weizmann again tried to buy the kotel. Bear in mind what is Chaim Weizmann's role in Zionism in 1918. So he is not yet officially the head of the World Zionist Organization. That happens a year later. However, he was appointed to the Zionist Commission, which was permitted by the British to show up and sort of walk around like they own the place and try to boss around the military governor. So Weitzman said the following in 1918, we Jews have many holy places in Palestine, but the Wailing Wall, believed to be part of the Old Temple Wall, is the only one which is in some sense left to us. All the others are in the hands of Christians or Muslims, and even the Wailing Wall is not really ours. It is surrounded by a group of miserable, dirty cottages and derelict buildings, which makes the whole place from a hygienic point of view a positive danger. And from a sentimental point of view, a source of constant humiliation to the Jews of the world. Our most sacred monument in our most sacred city is in the hands of some doubtful Maghreb religious community, which keeps these cottages as a source of income. We are willing to compensate this community very liberally. We should like the place to be cleaned up and we should give it a dignified and respectable appearance. In other words, in 1918, Weitzman already envis- has envisioned, uh, uh, envisioned a better looking hotel. Not necessarily the one we have now, but a much better looking one, not a dingy little alleyway. And he says, we're willing to pay these people to move away and for us to spruce up the joint. But nothing came of it. No transaction occurred. So the wall was increasingly nationalized by the Zionists in the 1920s in a battle with Islamic Palestinian nationalism. In the early Zionist days, the Kotel was seen as the domain of the old Yishuv for anti-Zionist traditionalists. However, that evolved in the 1920s so that now it was the Zionists who are making a big tzimus about the Kotel. Less so the Hasidim and the Haredim who still go to Davin there, but the Zionists are making a big tumult about how this is our place, our national homeland, our the locus of our national pride. They just don't want to have trouble. The British just don't want to have trouble, but there's going to be trouble. Okay, in 1928, Tisha B'av has become a nationalistic holiday at the Kotel, a symbol of national revival. The Zionists again tried to bribe the Maghreb quarter in 1928, although the deal falls flat. A committee for the defense of the Western Wall was established by Joseph Klausner. Joseph Klausner was a professor at Hebrew University, professor of Jewish history. He's most famous for writing uh, uh, The Jewish Jesus. Uh, And also for being a candidate for the presidency of the state of Israel in 1949 against Chaim Weizmann. And he lost badly. Weizmann won very handily in that first presidential election. Okay. Now the Mufti, Haj Amin al-Husseini, is not just going to let the Jews organize about the Kotel. He's going to do something big. So he forms a committee for the defense of the noble Barak. OK, the Burak, the donkey of Muhammad got tied up on the wall. So they're going to defend their version, their Islamic version of the wall.
1: Excuse me, wasn't yeah. this concept like only 150, 160 years ago when it first became the Burak wall?
0: It was. A, I don't know exactly when the myth developed, but it's a pretty late myth. It doesn't go back to the days of the, the, the building of the Dome of the Rock or or Al-Aqsa in you know, the, the, the 690s. Far, it's much later than that. I don't know exactly when that myth was developed. Well, I'm saying Muhammad didn't go up to Shemaim on a, uh, you know, in Jerusalem, and he didn't tie a donkey before he got there. So the whole thing is about a All right. Now, on August 14th, 1929... On August 14th, 29, a rally was held in Tel Aviv, where 6,000 people rallied for Jewish possession of the Kotel, and Rav Kook was there and participated in that rally. The next day, there was a rally at the Kotel, where the Zionist flag was waved and HaTikvah was sung. National and religious symbols were being mixed together. Remember, national religious Judaism, like Maftal-style Judaism, Mizrahi, to us, all right, we, we're accustomed to it because it's been around for a hundred years. The knitted yarmulke, the whole business. However, back then, this was new. This idea of mixing old religious symbols with the, the flag and the anthem, it's a new concept. Well, the chauffeur was sounded at the Kotel to announce a work stoppage. We're going on strike for the sake of the Kotel. August 15th was Tisha The Beitar youth rallied at the Western Wall, and a pogrom would follow. The pogrom begins in Hebron on August 23rd and extends to other parts of the country. You know the story, we've covered it. After the riots, yes, the the Kotel controversy was the spark that led to the Hebron riots. Yes, absolutely. In 29. 29. After the riots, the British imposed greater security at the Kotel. Zionist national ideology made use of religious tradition as a platform for achieving its goals. The Zionist leadership, centrist and left-wing leadership, had not really cared much about the Kotel prior to 1929. They only started to do so when they were outmaneuvered by the mostly secular right-wing revisionists. So here, a very important point. It's the revisionists, the right-wingers, the the predecessors of Likud, who are making a big fuss about the Kotel, a religious symbol, which they're turning into a national symbol, and these are mostly secular right wingers. But because they did it, the centrists and the left wingers also have to go along for the ride, and they have to adopt the kotel as a national symbol that they think is also important.
1: Or is there a significant blowback from the charedim and the religious
0: Yes, I mean not significant, but they do complain about it. They do complain. So uh, the situation at the kotel in '29 was a convergence of traditional sacrality and secular nationalism, thereby complicating the conflict with the Arabs. Remember, the conflict with the Arabs was supposed to be just a nationalistic conflict between the new yeshuv of Zionists and Palestinian nationalism. But once you inject Judaism, the religion, the religious symbols into it, now what does it become? It becomes Judaism versus Islam. And every Jew, even the Haredim, even the most Haredi of Haredim who hate Zionism, now have to throw their lot in with the Zionists. We just we, 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 in A couple of years ago, when we discussed the, the history of Zionism, I made a very important point, that if you're a, a Hasid or an old Yishuvnik in 1905, in 1914, in 1919, in 1922, you might still think to yourself, I am the true Jews of Palestine. I have no beef with the Arabs. We don't want a state. We just want to be left alone. And whatever happens, happens. But we have no no association with Zionism. After the 1929 riots, that attitude cannot exist. It's no longer tenable. Even the Aguda has to change its tune. Okay, then. Labor Zionists condemned Jewish provocations at the Kotel. They condemned the Jews for being too provocative. but they began demanding exclusive Jewish possession of the Kotel. In other words, we blame the revisionists for causing a big ruckus, but once they've caused it, the Kotel has to be ours. Okay, for taste, things haven't changed. The Kotel quickly became a symbol that was uniquely able to mobilize all sectors of Jewry to unite Zionists and non-Zionists. In 1929, the expansion of the Jewish agency to include diaspora non-Zionists is another example of that, where, you know, the the rich German Jews of America, who were anti-Zionist, or at least non-Zionist, were now co-opted into participating in the building up of the Yishuv. Well, everybody can agree the Kotel is a a symbol for all of us. Some say that the sudden emergence of the Kotel issue was a deliberate attempt to turn a national conflict with the Arabs into a religious one with the Muslims in order to gain worldwide Jewish support, including U.S. Jewry, which was reluctant to give that support, that interpretation is c- conspiratorial in nature, but it might be true. Cyrus Adler, who was the president of JTS, the president of Dropsy College, a big macher in the uh, American Jewish Committee, an old-fashioned, uh, you know, establishment Jew, he complained about Zionist appropriation of the kotel. In his view, the kotel was only a religious symbol, and the nationalists have no business stealing it from. World Judaism, okay, but they got away with it. Well, yes, he was he was personally a very observant Jew. Yes, okay. Um, Now, post nineteen sixty seven, everything changes, and I want to go to uh, to that issue now. What happens after nineteen sixty seven? So there are three stages in the modern history of the Koto, One was an urgent temporary preparation for the site after the Six-Day War. A second was permanent arrangements discussed in the 1970s with Moshe Safdie, the architect, uh, developing plans, which were ultimately rejected so that the temporary became permanent. And the third was ongoing challenges by the non-Orthodox to the status quo. So that, let's now go through the history of the last 55 years, 55 and a half years, uh, what happened. The decision immediately after the war was to destroy the Maghreb quarter and build a large open space, build a large open space. The Maghreb quarter was the property of the waqf. In 1965, the Jordanian waqf uh, uh, expelled 1,000 residents of the Maghreb quarter to the Shuafat refugee camp. This was later used as proof by Israel that the Maghreb quarter was a slum or a dump that objectively needed to be cleared out. And so, therefore, Israel's action in mid-June 1967 was no war crime. It was just legitimate urban planning, legitimate urban planning. Well, yeah, okay. The, 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 the Jordanians were clearing it out and we're just finishing the job. The 1967 destruction of the quarter was done without official authorization. So there are many stories, apocryphal, some true, about what happened. But the government never officially authorized what happened. Why? Plausible deniability. Mish you know? The fog of war. Who actually gave the order? We're not sure to this day. It's unclear. It was possibly... Moshe Dayan, who functioned as the defense minister at that time. It was possibly David Ben-Gurion, who at that time was merely a member of the Knesset and not in the government. It could have been Uzi Nakis, the general. It could have been Shlomo Lahat. It could have been Teddy Kallik, the, the the mayor. No paper trail was left. What actually happened? Bulldozers began arriving on Saturday night when the war ended. Bear in mind, the war was a six-day war. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. The war ended on Saturday in the Golan. The Friday and Saturday was really, there was nothing happening really in Egypt, and the Sinai, and the West Bank situation had been resolved by Thursday. Friday, Saturday was mostly in the North Country, in the Golan. But the, but the, the ceasefire went into effect late at night. The bulldozers started coming. And Shavuos was less than a week away. Shavuos was Tuesday night. Because remember... The, the, the third day of the war was the 28th of ER. So the war goes 29th, 30th, actually there is no 30th, so Rosh Chodesh, second day. So Shabbos was the second day of Sivan, which means Sunday is the third, Monday is the fourth, Tuesday is the fifth, Tuesday night is the sixth, Is Shavuos. So there are three days to get to Shavuos. And you got to clear out the, 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 the junk. Well, what happens?
1: It seems to me, and I've heard this, that... If that hadn't been done, yeah. later on, the claim by the Jordanians and the walk would have been
0: bloody murder if it happened there. Right. So the fog of war, you get away with more than you can in peacetime. Well, so Tuesday night was Yantif, and major crowds were expected. So what was done? 135 homes were destroyed. 650 refugees were shipped away. The residents were only given minutes to leave. It is claimed that some Arabs died in the rubble eshkol the prime minister supposedly didn't know what was happening now ordinarily we would say an israeli prime minister doesn't know what's going on couldn't be that's just a propaganda but in the case of eshkol who was a bit befuddled and had not been on his a game in advance of the war i'm tempted to believe that this is actually true that he really didn't know and other people gave the authorization because they were inclined to quick action um yeah, yeah, yeah. In 1968, some families who had been moved out accepted compensation for better housing accommodations. Some moved to North Africa, where their ancestors had come from. Other families refused the money so as not to give a heksher to Israel's actions. In other words, they refused the payment because taking payment is like taking blood money. It makes it what Israel did kosher. the truth
1: is that Johnson called up Sunday morning and told him
0: to stop? I don't think so. I don't, I don't believe that ever happened. I, I've heard that story, but I don't think that really happened. Um, so what does this episode show? It says, speak softly and create facts on the ground to determine the political future of disputed land. This would, dec- would continue with the settler movement in the West Bank. We learned when we discussed the history of the state of Israel that the settler movement in the late 60s and especially mid-1970s with Sebastia and elsewhere was all about wildcat settlements being made kosher after the fact. So you take action without authorization, and then you hope that it sticks. Okay, in the case of the Kotel, it did. All right. Well, Eshkol wanted to dispel the notion that Israel would disrupt the religious worship for other faiths. So he decided to leave the holy places in control of the ecclesiastics of the various faiths which means Holy Sepulchre, the Christian clergy are in control. Temple Mount, the Islamic waqf is in control. And the Kotel, a Jewish place, the rabbis are going to be in control. Early on, there were two fences creating three sections. The northeastern section was for men's prayer. The southeastern section was for women's prayer. And a general tourist area was 20 meters away from the wall. Uh, This was the original setup. The global reform movement of progressive Judaism applied for permission to have mixed services in 1968. They were rejected, and they chose to boycott the Kotel going forward. So organized liberal Judaism was boycotting the Kotel for a very long while, from the late 60s and onward. The minister of tourism did not want fences. Rather, he wanted a completely open plaza like it had been for generations. No mechitza, no men's section, no women's section, just you go, and you, you go up to the wall. It, it, was it was just a narrow alleyway, granted, okay. Now, the Knesset passed a law making the Minister of Religious Affairs responsible for issuing directives about prayer protocol, mechitza, chelul shabbos, eating and drinking, sneus. all the agenda items were in the hands of the Minister of Religious Affairs. Maftal controlled it at that time. So, because Aguda was out of the government. A dispute developed between the chief rabbis on the one hand, who were going to enact these rules, giving guidance to the Minister of Religious Affairs. So a dispute developed between the chief rabbis and the archaeologists led by Benjamin Mazar. Uh, In fact, it was a three-way machlokis, a a tripartite machlokis. What are the three interests? Religious, tourist, and historical research. The the minister of tourism wants open space. People can come, whoever you want, to show up and have a good time. The religious affairs people want an orthodox synagogue. The academic researchers want well, let's start digging and digging and whatever we find, we find. We'll, produce our, we'll, we'll, we'll publish our research. But you tourists and you from people, get out of our way. We want to have a free hand to do this research. The, 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 the sun, uh, okay. So you're assuming that that division of labor already exists. It's created right now as a compromise. Okay. So the compromise is reached. What is the compromise? Archaeology will be done in the south by Robinson's Arch. Prayer will be in the north, and tourism will be west of the prayer site. So everything you're accustomed to seeing when you get to the old city of the archaeological garden, and then you go further up, and then you get past the security checkpoint, and then there's an open plaza for the tourists, and you go a little further in, and that's where people daven. That didn't happen in a Shamayim. The Rebondos didn't come down from heaven and say, this is how the setup is going to be. That was a compromise that developed in late 1967 to accommodate three different interests, tourism, religion, and archaeology. I
1: don't, I don't know the geography. The latest digs that you see when you go there, which yeah. is behind the plaza, right, is that part of the original agreement no
0: no that 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 which is behind the the curtain that nobody knows what's going on yeah. there you know, uh, flush against the wall right. that's that's it's going on it's been going on for for 20 years as far as i know i mean since my first trip to israel maybe even longer than that uh that was not part of the original kotel plaza that was i don't know what it was but but they're digging underneath they're
1: also underneath
0: the plaza also. that's correct yeah now what happens next so in July of 1967, an architect working for the Ministry of Religion, of Religious Affairs, came up with a plan to remove rubble, clean up the place, make bathrooms and stairway approaches. So that's important because we're, today we're accustomed to the fact that there's, there are bathrooms by the side wall there, where the water fountains are, and you know, you can, it's comfortable. There's, a, there's lighting everywhere. You can go at night and you can see what's going on. It's not pitch black. All this stuff didn't exist. So the, the architects working for the Ministry of Religious Affairs, they had to come up with all this stuff, and they did so in the summer of 67. Because uh, Shavu's time, it was just, it was just empty space. There were, no, there were no bathrooms, there were no water fountains, there were no lights, nothing, Gronisch, dirt roads. So the, the building of the staircases happened in the late 1960s. How many staircases are there? So there are, I mean, today, I don't know what it was 50 years ago, but today there are four access points to the Kotel Plaza, there's the access point coming from the Dung Gate, where the buses are, there's an access point going towards the Muslim Quarter, by where the Kotel Tunnel Tours begin, and there are the two staircases, one coming from the main area of the Jewish Quarter, um, coming down from the Chorva, and the other, from Miskav Ladach, you know, the the back way, where where Yeshivat uh, Netivari is now. Okay.
1: Where did they install the Chabad? Chabad? Yeah, I mean, did they have to get special permission? I mean, or were they there from the beginning? I, I,
0: I don't, I don't, know. I don't know. I mean, the guys with the in on the side—I yeah, right? yeah. I don't, I don't know. Okay, so the two different heights were developed. The lower area next to the wall extends 25 meters outward, and then the upper area is for non-praying tourists. So, if you notice, when you go to the Kotel, it's it's it slopes downward, and then. When you get to the, to the to the to the to the fence, which separates the tourist area from the prayer area, there's a drop down, a drop down of several feet. I think today it's about eight feet. It's pretty steep, actually. Um, that was already in the late '60s. The design have it low to the ground, flush against the wall, higher up as you go further away for the tourists. Okay, the military character of the koto IDF swearing-in ceremonies, began in the late '60s. However, the religious had a problem with this because you have mixed audiences attending these swearing-in ceremonies. And there was a Gadna episode in 1991, Gadna being the, the, the teenagers who were you know, getting ready for military service, the, the pre, pre-military. There was Taruvas, mixed dancing, something along those lines. And Rav Getz, who was the Rav of the Kotel, threatened to resign if we don't cut this out. No more. No more mixed dancing at the military swearing-in ceremonies. Okay. In 1973, Moshe Safdie, famous architect, was consulted by the Society for the Development and Rehabilitation of the Jewish Quarter. And they recognized two principles. One, the Western Wall is a holy area. And number two, it needs to be made accessible for tourists and for national assemblies. That this is going to be a place where the big events of Medina Israel will take place. Yes, Har Herzl is another location, and we're going to discuss Har Herzl. We're going to spend a session on that a few weeks from now. But the Kotel also is going to be a place for national assemblies. So Safdie had an idea of terraced platforms rising and narrowing as you go further west, meaning low to the ground in the east against the wall, getting higher and higher with little terraced platforms. It was a nice idea. I've seen pictures of it. Maybe it's even in this book. I don't remember. But um, it was ultimately rejected. The rabbis had a problem with it they claimed to transform the place into an Oriental Bazaar of Sanctity. Those were the exact words, an Oriental Bazaar of Sanctity. So it was never implemented. But because it was never implemented, the temporary setup of late 1967 became the permanent setup. Archaeology in the South, prayer in the Northeast, tourism in the Northwest. In 1977, what happened? Who wins the election? The Likud, the Mapach, Okay, Likud takes power for the first time, and Menachem Begin is in charge, and Aguda comes back into the government for the first time in a long time. At that point, all the plans are frozen in place. Everything is at a standstill. Nothing is going to be going to be uh, uh, approved. The minister of religions controls the Western Wall and the Southern Wall, and if the minister of religious affairs is an Orthodox Jew representing the Ma'am Afdal or Aguda, then the interests of orthodoxy will be preserved, much to the chagrin of the reform and the conservative. Okay, so in the first Bibi administration, 1996 to 1999, there were three areas of conflict between the non-orthodox and the state. Those three areas of conflict were conversions, local religious councils, if you remember, that was a big controversy back then about having, appointing non-orthodox Jews to religious councils, and prayer at the Kotel. Tisha 1997, conservative Jews tried to hold a service in the Kotel Plaza and were arrested. It was a big scandal, made the New York Times. In 1998, the government committee proposed a non-Orthodox prayer area at the southern end of the Western Wall in the area of Robinson's Arch. This area would eventually become known as Ezrat Yisrael, as it is known today. And it is used today, not very often, but it is used. Uh, Holiness, heritage, nationalism, tourism. The policymakers have to navigate all these things. Post-1967, Israel relinquished the Temple Mount, but intensified its presence at the Koto. Arguably, the government was looking to redirect messianic fervor towards a less explosive site. So this is an interesting theory about how the Kotel came to be. The Kotel, the big deal that it is. The Temple Mount is World War Three waiting to happen. There are those Jews who would say, "Blow it up!" All right. And we learned about that last time. Various efforts that failed to blow up the Dome, the Al-Aqsa, whatever, would what have you. So by redirecting Jewish focus away from a more explosive place like the Temple Mount. Towards a less controversial, although still controversial, place like the Kotel, the government is doing a savvy thing in preventing potentially huge conflict. Okay. I
1: know you'll probably talk about it later, but why not divert to Hebron?
0: That's even worse because it's an Arab city without Jews. There's one hundred fifty thousand Arabs there. It's uh, uh, it's an Islamic shrine. I mean, and it's going to have its problems with nineteen ninety four with Goldstein. So. The Kotel is a good alternative. It already has a religious tradition as a site of Jewish prayer, and we can make it a big deal. And everybody's gonna fall for it. Even the Hasidim fell for it. Okay? Well, let's see what happens. uh, Maybe, maybe. Remember, the Zionists are a wily bunch, and the idea that this was a deliberate attempt to redirect people's focus i can accept as as fact all right uh, all right well yeah. now uh, before the sixth, b- before 1948 religious sacred places and zionist sacred spaces hardly overlapped at all what are the zionist sacred spaces masada tel okay Uh, Beitar, what are the Judaism's holy places? Chevron, the Kotel, Kevarachel. okay, so there's not a lot of overlap between Zionist sacred space and Judaism's sacred spaces pre-1948 or pre-1967. After the Six-Day War, the Kotel changes that reality. There's no longer a dichotomy. It is now the one and the same. The national holy place is the the, the religious holy place. Post-Six-Day War, Various government agencies took over historic places in the West Bank with little coordination. There was the Parks Authority, the Antiquities Authority, the Ministry of Religious Affairs. Everybody wants a piece of the pie. Moshe Dayan wanted the Parks Authority in charge of the Kotel as part of a park ringing the walls of the Old City. Does a park ring the walls of the Old City? Sort of. There's a grassy area that runs around most of the Old City, it runs into a problem by the, by the Arab cemetery on the, the, the far side, on the eastern side, but there is a grassy area around around the old city. Um, and Dayan, who did not really like the old Vatican of the old city, he was happy to give it to the Parks Department. Um, Zarich Haftig, who was the head of the Mafdal, he objected. He wanted it to be in the hands of religious authorities. The rabbis make sure that it's a holy place, not just a park. The Knesset passed the Protection of Holy Places Law in July of 1967. The Minister of Religious Affairs interpreted the law as giving the chief rabbi's control of the Kotel, who would in turn appoint a Kotel rabbi. Thus, religious priorities came first, and national historical priorities came second, if at all. The government stepped in during the summer of 1967 to prevent panhandling. Okay, Sadly, their efforts did not succeed. And I'm sure you've all been hit up for money at the koto. I
1: have not seen that much in a couple of trips that I had.
0: Lately, you're right. It's, it's gotten better lately. It actually has gotten better. They but they, right. But the other thing is, what life cycle occasions happen at the Koto? Bar Mitzvahs. Why?
1: So why not? You that
0: do All right. That's his aim, Terrence. That's one answer. But Okay. So let me, let me explain something to you here. Just like you took for granted that the archaeological areas in the south, the prairie areas in the northeast, and the tourist areas in the northwest, because that's what you've known for the last 55 years. Well, but somebody had to invent that. So somebody also had to invent what life cycle occasions are appropriate for the Kotel and what are not. But what we know today isn't necessarily what was the first, the first day in, in June and July of 67. So what happened? People were having bris milah at the Kotel. People were getting married at the Kotel. And the government stepped in and said, we don't want this. It's, you can't do this. No weddings, no bris. But we'll encourage bar mitzvah. Why? So no bris because it's dangerous for the baby to have a bris outdoors in a, in a, in a windswept area. It's dusty. There's a lot of uh, rubble. It's not safe. At least it wasn't because it wasn't so sanitary hygienic back then. No weddings because it's too, mu- it's, it's too much of a tumult. Uh, there's music and they don't want to have music at the Kotel. Uh, they, it's, it's a serious place, not a price, place for frivolity. Okay, but Bar Mitzvah, it's that's the that's a Kriya Torah. that's a synagogue thing. And we want to turn the Kotel into a synagogue. Therefore, yes to Bar Mitzvah, no to bris, no to weddings. If somebody
1: wants to do weddings in the plaza,
0: yeah. they would shut it down? Nowadays, yes. Yes. You got to go to the archaeological garden and pay, pay money for a rental fee. Okay. They shut down the wedding. They shut down the wedding. Yeah, you can't do it. So now, they leveled off the ground and later paved it. Electricity, lights, ushers in blue uniforms enforcing decorum. Meaning, if your skirt is too short or your sleeves are too short, they give you the shawl. Okay. Varhaftig announced in August of '67 that the kotel would not become a museum, a monument, military or historic site. Remember. It's not yet determined. It's not a foregone conclusion. This is going to become a pl- place of prayer primarily. It could have become a military museum. It could have become a historic site. Uh, you know, it was very much up in the air what would happen. But because he was in charge, he made sure it became a shul.
1: They view it as something of a caretaker in the Jewish world, or just
0: only Over time. It developed a caretaker for the whole Jewish world. In the beginning, this was Israel and Israel only. And the, the, the concerns of the diaspora were of of no, of, of no regard. Okay, now, uh, Professor Yeshayahu Leibowitz objected to the popularization of the Kotel. Now, Professor Yeshayahu Leibowitz was known as the ultimate curmudgeon. I respect him greatly, and I read his commentaries on the Chumash and I very much think he was a great man. However, he was a contrarian. They say about him, and I don't think it was true, that on, on Purim, he would go to Yerushalayim, and on Shushan Purim, he'd go to Tel Aviv. Why? To avoid Purim altogether, because it's too nationalistic. That, uh, that, I don't think it's true, but they would say that about him. He didn't like that the Kotel became the Disc hotel. It's a disco It's a disco. It's a place of fun games, frivolity, not solemnity. So he very much objected to all this. Was he right or was he wrong? Well, he was right to a great extent. I mean, the Kotel is fun and games for a lot of Jews who go there, especially from the diaspora who go on pilgrimage to Israel and they're not really interested in praying. They're not the praying type, they're not believers, they're not religious. And they, they're going, I've seen it from the Birthright kids. It's, it's, it's not ideal. Yeah. And, and, and if we go back to history a few thousand years, no, exactly. You're right. The temple was a place for plenty of frivolity. So times, times may, the time goes on, but the things stay the same.
1: But it was the same the for the church of The, shown the shown holy site. Yeah, right. yeah. You're right. What, the the uh, in yeah.
0: the olden days, not anymore. <laughs> okay. Now, Nathan not Altman um, supported religious control over the site. Despite him being a poet, not you know, a devout Orthodox Jew, he said it, it was a historic place of worship of a continuously living religion and should remain as such, meaning it was always a place of worship in the days of the Beit HaMikdash and the days post-Beit HaMikdash when we mourned over the korban at this site. So it, since it was always a place to recall religion, of a living religion, let it remain that way. And what is the living religion of Judaism in Israel, at least back then? Orthodox Judaism. So let it be an orthodox jewel. That was his argument. It's hard to argue with that argument. Okay.
1: Yeah, but there wasn't, there wasn't a, a division of orthodox reform and conservative. Understood. So, I mean, yes. it seems to be loading the dice here.
0: Maybe. Now, people, complained, people complained that the men's section was four times the size of the women's section. Oh, so. It was 80-20. Back in the olden days. Uh, it has evolved over time. It's not 50-50, but it's not 80-20. It's, I don't know, maybe 70-30, 65-35. I'm not exactly sure what the ratio is right now. It skews towards the men, but not, not as egregious. There are more men coming to Davin. Yeah, yeah, objectively, yeah, the you need more place. Woman. Huh? Yeah. yeah. So uh, during the first month after the war, the IDF military rabbinate was in control. And there was no extreme separation of the sexes. Mixed groups were tolerated. When did this change? July of 67. That up for the first month, there was plenty of mingling and swingling. After a month, after the military rabbinate left and the chief rabbinate took over Ministry of Religious Affairs, that's when it became like Yahweh of to go from one side of the machitza to the other. All right. Levy Eshkol, the prime minister, did not like what happened he referred to the gendered prayer areas as corrals. Now, Levi Eshkol was not a firm man by any stretch. He was a very secular guy, and he didn't like what he saw happening to the Kotel. Letters to the editor of Israeli newspapers about the summer of 67 were pro and con religious control of the Kotel. So if you, if you look up Jerusalem Post, Haaretz, Davar, from that era, you'll see letters, yes, this is good, no, this is terrible, Everybody had an opinion about what should happen to the Kotel. Rabin, Dayan, and the IDF leadership held a small memorial service at the Kotel shortly after the war. That began a trend of using the Kotel as a place for recalling lost soldiers. Bereaved parents lit candles at the Kotel on Yomazikaron of 1968. And the official Yom HaZikon ceremony was held at the Kotel in 1969, meaning Har Herzl was the place for the first 18,20 years of Israel's existence. On an ad hoc basis, in '68, a year after the, uh, the six-day war, parents who lost sons who died in fighting the Battle of Jerusalem went to the Kotel, but it was seen as an appropriate venue, therefore the official ceremony wasn't put there the next year. Right? Yeah. Now, the first swearing-in ceremony for IDF officers was held at the Kotel in September of 67. It was scheduled for after Maruv so as not to offend the regular worshippers. And, by the way, on my last trip to Israel, I was at one of these ceremonies, and they were very careful. The ceremony began at 7.30, because the Zman for Maruv that night was around 715 and I, and I didn't know this at the time. I learned this after the fact. I was thinking to myself, "Oh, it's pretty good. We davened, and now we can go watch the ceremony behind, you know, up on the top of the, the, the plaza." Um, this was all intended to make shalom between the religious usage of the site and the secular usage of the site. But moreover, the, only the bugle was used in these military. Uh, swearing-in ceremonies, okay. no other mu- musical instruments. Why? So as not to defile the sanctity of the place with you know, rock music and the, and the like. Yes, 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 that is a long-standing tradition. Also, the ceremony included readings from the Tanakh and the handing out of a Bible to each inductee. So in many respects, this was a more religious ceremony that might otherwise have been had it taken place in some other venue. Some Haredim opposed these ceremonies because it meant the intrusion of Zionism and modern nationalism at their place of prayer. It was encroachment on their turf. Well, tough luck. I mean, that's really what it all boils down to. 200,000 people visited uh, the Kotel for the very first Shavuot, three days after the war. 100,000 visited for Tisha B'Av. The shofar blowing on Rosh Hashanah in the few, first few years after the Six-Day War was a big deal because it wasn't only a mitzvah to hear Tkia's shofar. It was also what? First time was right, it was, it, was a, a, it was designed as a, a protest 40 years too late against British policy not allowing the blowing of the shofar at the Western Wall Plaza. Okay. Um, there was a torch relay from Modi'in to the Kotel in December of 1967 to celebrate the first Hanukkah with Har Habayit Bi'adenu. So Modi'in, the home of the Maccabees, there was a relay, you know, like the Olympic torch, all the way to the Kotel to light the menorah at the Hanukiah at the Kotel. Yom Yerushalayim uh, had a, a variety of observances. Crowds at the Kotel grew each year. I remember I went, my first trip to Israel was in 2002. My very first thing that I did was go to the Kotel. There were 80,000 people in the Kotel Plaza. But there were other events that happened at the Kotel Plaza. This became a gathering for world Jewry. So, for example, there was the rally for Soviet Jewry in 1971. Simultaneous rally on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan and at the Kotel in Jerusalem. There was also a rally in 1981 uh, at the Kotel protesting the implementation of the Camp David Accords, including the participation of certain of the chief rabbis. Um, In 1973, a proposal was made to build a monument in the back of the Kotel Plaza to the war dead, especially those who died liberating Yerushalayim but this idea was rejected by Rav Gorin. Rav Goren who had just been installed as the chief rabbi of Israel in 1973, he objected to it. So if you notice there are no memorials in the Kotel Plaza. It's just empty space, a machitza and a wall and a bathroom on the side and a, and a water fountain. There are no there are no markers like it's not it doesn't have a feel of a museum. There's no uh, little blurbs and inscriptions, none, none of that. Why Rav Goren didn't want that. He felt anything museum-like or memorial-like will have you looking away from Harabid, away from the Kotel itself. So none of that ever was put into play. Okay. Um, my last point for tonight, before we stop, is that the Kotel has come to be respected by the wider world, by the non-Jewish world, as a legitimate Jewish site in what regard, insofar as diplomats who come to Israel, foreign ministers, secretaries of state, heads of state, when they come to Israel, they will only step foot in Israel proper. they will not go to a settlement in the West Bank, they will not go to jewish east East Jerusalem, but where will they go? They'll go to the Cotel. The, of course, my friend Benedict. No, no, John, John Paul II. What about uh, Trump? Huh? Didn't
1: Trump...
0: Uh, yeah. Tr- Tr- so Trump was not, w- 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 was not the first uh, U.S. president to go to the Cotel. Obama was at the Cotel. Bill Clinton was at the Cotel. Uh, the Cotel is seen somehow as... An extraterritorial place that belongs to the state of Israel. Even though the governments that are sending these representatives do not recognize Israeli sovereignty over East Jerusalem, or maybe even over any of Jerusalem, but certainly over East Jerusalem, let alone the old city, will nonetheless allow representation to go to the Kotel, put their hand on the wall, kiss it, say a couple of mumbo-jumbo prayers of whatever religion they have, and walk away. Why? Super-duper Judaism, right that the Jewish angle, the Judaic angle, has been able to able to win out over the political nationalistic controversy. And that, we should recognize, it didn't have to be that way. It could have been that they could boycott the Kotel too. Somehow, we've been lucky enough that our collective Jewish rights at that site have been respected in ways that in bygone era was not the case. Questions?
1: Yeah, when, when they... They got to the hotel in '67. Yeah. Purportedly, Rav blew the chauffeur. Yeah. But I heard that maybe he really wasn't him. He who blew the chauffeur was the.
0: No, no, he was there. He was there. He the was- pictures.
1: <laughs>
0: okay, folks. A good night, everybody. We're we're meeting again in two weeks. Uh, the thirty first. Thirty first. Okay. Yeah.